Welcome to Funk Podcast, a game design podcast by game developers. I'm Sean Noonan, a game and level designer. And I'm Comfort Jones, and I'm a hack fraud <laughs> slash amateur mod maker. Yeah, so we should probably open up with a couple of things that we've been working on recently. Yeah, sure. So what I've been working on lately, obviously I still can't talk about the indie project because it's still not quite ready. But in my free time, I've been working on the Super 1-1 Challenge, which is a first-person 3D remake of Nintendo's Super Mario Brothers uh, Level 1-1. I released it in the past, and it was quite rough because it was made for a month challenge uh, initially. So I'm using it as an excuse to kind of get better with certain art tools because I'm trying to be a bit of a one-man army when it comes to building small projects and prototypes. And I've just been like polishing up some of the visuals and learning some new techniques, really. It's where most of my time's been going. I think what you what you really want to say is a fan interpretation of visuals inspired by a certain famous Nintendo IP because somehow you've managed not have been taken down, <laughs> which I think is almost entirely due to the fact that Mario is not anywhere that I can see in the official like release, like the title or anything like that. Yeah. Because I think that's generally how copyright works right it's like mostly names i don't think they don't own those pipes they don't own like a guy going wahoo they don't you know they don't own that shit (laughs) well they definitely do own the audio i don't have a legal leg to stand on there Mm. because i am using their audio oh don't don't say that out loud (laughs) but it's parody right (laughs) sure yeah family guy had a whole star wars episode right fair use or something (laughs) or something Yeah, it's it's just a kind of fan project. It's not really going anywhere. It's not made for financial gain. It's not expanding anymore. It's just a good test bed for me to learn stuff. Yeah. I, I will expand it somewhat as I'm learning new things, but it's, it's not really ever going to be a fully-fledged game. It'll never be like you know, properly released or anything. Yeah, that's when Nintendo takes it down. It's when you've put four more years into it and you've got like a whole <laughs> whole playable thing. And like the day before they send you that, that fat DM- DMCA, it's just like knock that shit off. Yeah, it's kind of strange how different companies work with this stuff. I know that Konami are a bit heavy handed with this in the same way that Nintendo are. Oh, I'm sure. Capcom don't seem to mind specifically around the Resident Evil stuff. Mm. They seem to be quite supportive of fan games. As long as there's no money changing hands, they seem to not mind at all. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I despise it when people act like this is like a must under copyright. Like, oh, they have to do this, actually. And I'm like, well, no, because there are companies that don't, and it's still fine. Like, the, the public does not own Sonic yet, and <laughs> the reason we even got a Sonic Mania is because Sega has been fairly encouraging of, like, the Sonic fan game scene, and they hired people from the, that scene to, like, do stuff for them. Like, they did, like, a port or something of uh, one of their old Sonic games, and then, yeah. you know, they were like, hey, you guys want to just do Sonic? And they are like, yeah, and they, they, they did it. Because, like, to me, if, like, fans are making something that could compete with you for free, like, you probably should be hiring those people. Like, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've definitely um, seen some Resident Evil things get taken down because they happen to be in line with Capcom's own release schedule. So Yeah, of course. I think it was the Resident Evil 2 remake. There was an HD remake being done by some people at the same time. So uh, I yeah. believe, I don't think they hired them, but I think they took them to look at the game and play the game and, you know, gave them sort of like special treatment for, for a bit. Mm. And I think they even credited them in the credits of the game. Oh, that's really cool. 
I'm not 100% sure on that, but I know that they did get some kind of special treatment and the special treatment was taking them to the studio, not taking them to court, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Meanwhile, uh, there was a guy who did a Metroid 2 remake and like who has ever cared about Metroid 2 besides people who are making Metroid 2 remakes, right? There is a sort of slight crossover there because obviously they were making one. Yep. (laughs) yep nintendo's like bad news fucker i'm trying to think of properties that really have the same kind of because obviously like valve seemed to be okay with it i mean you're in that boat right (laughs) oh yeah i've been working on a half-life 2 mod for a while that uses a bunch of stuff that isn't directly in half-life 2 but it's still like in source and it's like i can't imagine them ever giving a shit about that like if you take like a prop from left 4 dead or like stuff even just from like half-life alex rather than half-life 2 like they're not they're not gonna stop you Flash forward to me getting stopped. Well, they they must be okay with it. Yeah, because of um uh, what's what's that thing? Uh, the the kids love it, where you make things in source modding, source modding. No, no, the there's a game. Ha- Wait, uh, hammer. Oh, Gary's mod. Is what you're thinking of? Yes, yeah, yeah. So that's just God. You sounded like an actual boomer there, Jesus. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, th- th- that's full of all sorts of stuff. Even the leaked stuff, right? I think. Uh, well, yeah, the leaked stuff uh, is out there in so many different ways. But Valve are cool with that enough for it to be sold as a product, right? So. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, the thing is, Gary's mod they don't include like leaked crap like in the direct in, in like the the game itself. It's more like you download it from like the workshop. But like, yeah, they won't stop anyone from putting a gas mask citizen or whatever but it's it's still on the workshop which is their platform right yeah yep <laughs> okay yep as long as it's not like something breaking their tos you can put it on the workshop pretty easily yeah i, I guess there's probably about an equal share i think of companies that are supportive of uh modding and you know fan projects as there are those that are against yeah really i, I guess it's just the bit the bigger fandoms kind of they drum up the most sort of anger when something goes wrong, I suppose. I was following a project with somebody I sort of don't really speak to much now, but uh, um, at the time I was speaking to quite a lot uh, in the pixel art scene. They were making a game called No Mario Sky mm. um, for, I think it was for Ludum Dare. Sound of me typing to look this up. No Mario Sky? Yeah, um, which is obviously a mix of No Man's Sky and Mario. <sighs> Huh. I think they had to rename it because they did get a cease and desist. <laughs> what can I say what the rename is? It has a Wikipedia entry. <laughs> it's called DMCA Sky. That was it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that was the, I, I believe, I don't know who all of the developers were, but one of them was the developer of Moon Man or Moon Quest as it got renamed. But the, that character was in my first indie game, Jack B. Nimble as well. Oh. So that was the connection there. And all goes full circle. But uh, yeah, different approaches with different companies, I suppose. We'll see if Nintendo ever uh, come for me. I, I, I would like to think that I've done a tasteful enough job. I haven't provided Mario with a flamethrower and I haven't given him, you know, a Glock and a Mossberg and <laughs> there's not blood going everywhere when you shoot. The, you know, I, I've, I've done it as tasteful as I could. Yeah, you think you won't like get the mad about like the image or something? Yeah, I, I mean, after I released the initial demo, was it 2020, I think, on March 10th, Mario Day, which I guess could have caused me some problems because that is a marketing opportunity for Nintendo. Yeah. Um. So I was clashing with them, but luckily they weren't releasing a game. All they released at, at that time was their Lego, so it was fine. But since I released that, a couple of YouTubers or 
people who don't have YouTube channels and just started YouTube channels to make the same thing, mm. uh, did something similar, and they were incredibly successful, um, but they were yeah. quite far away from tasteful, uh, <laughs> I would say. I have the mental image of a guy shooting a bolt-action rifle at a Pokemon in my head right now, if that's what you're talking about. Yes, yes, exactly that kind of thing, which uh, I, I don't particularly like myself either. So I could probably understand why the DMCA's might come a bit quicker for those people, because they're misrepresenting the IP. Yeah. But it, e- either way, no matter what you do, you still don't really have a legal leg to stand on. You're just at the mercy of whether or not a company is okay with what you're doing. Yeah, we're, we're it's kind of in similar worlds, but very different dispositions. Where you're working on on this like fan project that's on a you know on a real, and you, you know you you don't feel safe at all. I gotta imagine like your safety is basically just they haven't done anything yet. Yes, or it's like I'm working on a Half Life Two mod, so I feel a hundred percent safe. Like never have I ever worried about Valve doing anything because why would they? But I'm trapped on the source engine, so it's like that's that's a diff that's a different kind of nightmare where it's like you know worst case I think you could probably turn like your your project into its own thing with like some unique visuals. Yeah. If if Valve shut my project down, ooh, that'd be rough because it's like if I wanted to do something with it, I've got to pay those licensing fees or something. Sucks, but um, yeah, I guess I didn't say what I've been working on because you've been talking about working on uh, the one one challenge. It's called one one challenge, right? Or world one. Yeah, super one one challenge. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I work on a, a mod called Half-Life 2 Inhuman. It's a uh, really extensive Half-Life 2 mod that overhauls like weapon and balance and like enemy behavior, all that stuff. We talked about it a, a good amount uh, last podcast. I'm basically on a massive grind towards getting it shipped in like hopefully about two to three months. So I've been doing more level design than ever in my life and forcing myself to really get more of a process for that. And that's something I want to really talk about on this episode was... uh. You know, what's your, like, what, what is your general process? What's, like, your workflow? Uh, things like that. Because you have a lot more experience in that field than I do. You worked as a uh, lead level designer for a major release, right? Yeah, yeah, on Gears Tactics. I was lead level designer for most of the project. I did start off as a senior and took uh, over as lead a little after the vertical slice was done. Yeah, the, the vertical slice was actually the demo that was um, used to show the game for the first time. It was the reveal video that Rod Ferguson shown at E3, I think. Oh, yeah, I think I remember what you're talking about. It was that demo that we used to kind of work out the overall pace of the game. It did slightly change over time, but it, it was kind of trying to set a pace. I guess the visual bar as well, right? which I think we kind of nailed. So it's quite a nice looking game. Oh yeah, definitely. I can, I can say that because I didn't do the art. <laughs> <laughs> so I basically took over as lead a little after that. And it was a little after that it was when we started doing multiple biomes. So as soon as we stepped out of the realm of the typical Gears of War style neoclassical architecture and stuff as soon as we were doing other biomes I think that was around when I took over so the the process was basically being refined uh, during that time and I was kind of the guinea pig for it so it meant right it was, it was quite a nice way to move from kind of a senior designer being the guinea pig of the current process and then being able to update it as I sort of took the reins so to speak so what was your general process for like getting a level going in that game like did it was it like a significant challenge from like what you usually worked on um it was it was quite different rather than making individual levels we were kind of making these um blueprints for levels it all started with the biome because that controlled most of what the tools the designers had at their disposal so for instance the first biome was a neoclassical architecture um very um gothic uh so we had roads buildings um there are a couple of elevations in the form of um stairs going to sort of promenades and things 
that was the very structured biome. Then there was a desert biome that had cliffs that went into oceans, so you had these spaces between islands. So the biome was built around that kind of thought process, so having missions spread over like wide locations but funneled at very, very tight choke points. And then the final biome was a similar deserty one but further into like a war zone like a sort of an old war zone you were kind of seeing the aftermath of um, the pendulum wars which is basically two of the human factions before the gears of war games took place uh, fighting out so you you're basically going through like carcasses of tanks and power armor all that kind of stuff like all just like through trenches and all that kind of thing and that had um cliffs and rock formations and things so that was that was quite different so when you were building these locations you went in biome first because that dictated what you were going to build like when you were building levels you'd either be building what we call tiles or plots tiles were like smaller vignettes i would say like a piece of a road could be a tile uh, a single building could be a tile but a plot would be like an array of road pieces that made up a full highway with some buildings on it so the plot was like a collection of tiles you basically build a level out of tiles that you built first so you'd have a bunch of tiles that you built, then you put them together in a plot, and then you could technically move those tiles around and then make a lot of different levels with those tiles. So sort of almost semi-modular in that way. Yeah, yeah. It, it was like kind of macro-modular. Yeah. Was there a lot of discussion about, like, like, like before you started doing that, like, was there a lot of talk about how you were going to be making the game? Like, 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 how did you settle on that process? Was it an efficiency thing or? Yeah, I mean, it was efficiency, but it was also just looking at the competition. Well, all of the design team had spent like a fair amount of time looking at the level editor and tools that were available, like the actual released modding tools for um, XCOM 2. Mm-hmm. We based our initial work on that. Crucially, the vertical slice level, the one that was initially revealed, that actually wasn't really using that process because it was trying to show like what a linear Gears of War style mission would be like. So we did have a couple of those in the game, you know, the sort of more yeah. typical um, linear missions. Um, there weren't many of them because, that you know, they're far more expensive and less flexible for a game of that scale and scope. So we based it off essentially what what the competition was doing really um, as a starting point. And then we just changed things for how would best fit our workflow and the the differences in the games. So you basically created like these like, you know, tile pieces and put them down like a like a larger space to create a level. Yeah. What would drive how you did that besides the biome? Like like when you think about a level, what's your kind of like start to end process where it's like do you, do you start more with like the narrative do you start more with like what's a gameplay beat we should hit or because i'm curious like how often did you have like a game design element that you felt like wasn't getting enough love so you felt like you needed to make a level for it or was it like hey we just came up with an idea but we need you to make a level for it you know stuff like that right so we had a set of objectives that the player could go through. Like mm-hmm. every every level was technically standalone, so there was a mission applied to every level. So when you were going in to build a level, the level designer they definitely know what biome they were going to be working in. They probably know the mission type. They'd have a few to choose from, so they go with the mission type, and then that would then dictate what the plot size, so the overall full bounds of the level would be. Okay. The specific requirements, so say your mission is one where you had to deactivate a bomb or something, that would have like 
a place to put the bomb. There would be a, a checkpoint halfway through that as well. So it would give you a kind of idea of how you'd be building the flow of the mission because you'd have those objective requirements in place straight away. So they were the constraints that designers had to work with. But from there, they could kind of do anything that they wanted, really. We had quite a few tracking documents for basically how much something was used. Mm -hmm. Even though the level design was built in a way that you could reuse a lot of stuff, we tried not to reuse a lot of stuff. You wanted a lot of variety, pretty much. Well, yeah, we wanted everything to feel fresh. Right. Especially in the main campaign, we made sure that certain uh, tiles would appear at certain times because we wanted to make certain things stand out more. So something I should mention is we did have a, a scripted campaign where the tiles were all mostly locked down. So we knew going in that the level would look the way that we'd planned it out. Yeah. But we also had... Um, essentially side missions that randomize those things within certain metadata so yeah if you had uh say a two by two building so that would be quite a small building in a map that could be one of maybe six different buildings and it could have one of four rotations or something but we could also customize that so maybe it wouldn't rotate or it would only rotate either left or right like 90 degrees because you wanted the door to be visible from a road or something because we always made sure that most of our stuff was directional so that if there was uh, different types of buildings the metadata would still have enough understanding that it would always look correct and it would always give us the sort of gameplay we were looking for but maybe you'd get some um, unexpected results that would be fun that, you know would surprise the player in a good way Right. It sounds kind of like how, if I remember correctly, it's kind of how Spelunky handles randomness, where... Yeah, somewhat. You know, everything's, like, randomly generated, but it's all within a lot of constraints. Like, like there's no one part that isn't in some way handcrafted by the developer. It's just, there's so much that can be spawned, and, you know, it, it can get crazy in that way. This is probably quite a controversial thing, but the only thing as a level designer that we had very, very little control over was where the enemies were going to spawn. Hmm. We placed the spawners in the maps, but they were placed within the tiles. So we knew where they would spawn if a certain tile was in a certain place, but the mission logic was the thing that was spawning enemies in different areas. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Honestly, I mean, I, I kind of wish I had more options for, for stuff like that within what I'm working in, but it just it doesn't get a, as much of a chance to get used. Yeah, you do get a little bit more f uh, freedom and flexibility in a, a turn-based tactics game. Yeah, definitely. Because that elevated view, it's, it's never really a bad thing to be blindsided too much. It's, it's something you almost expect. Um, line of sight isn't important in the same kind of way as it is in first or third person. Like It's, it's important in that you, you're trying to not get flanked and you're trying to make sure that the, the enemy line of sight is not going to actually hit you. We had these uh, Overwatch cones where basically you'd paint down, and if an enemy used to stand in that cone, they'd get shot in their turn kind of thing. Yeah, that's something I was going to ask about, actually. So my project, it's a, it's a first-person shooter, so almost everything I think about is in relation to line-of-sight blockers. Yeah. Even just, like, how you want things to move in the level, it really comes down largely to line-of-sight blockers. So, like, if you put cover in the center of the stage rather than on the sides of it, that's how you have quote-unquote flanking behavior. That's it. It's, it, has nothing, it has almost nothing to do with AI and almost everything just to do with like yeah. how, how is your line of sight structured. Because if your line of sight is structured in a way where the player is going to be going to the center of the stage, that gives NPCs more reasons to be on the side of you when they you know move in or whatever. So lots of, lots of figuring out crap like that where it's like, okay, what's like a safe distance... Um, to put certain line of sight blockers so 
enemies have like a position here but they don't want to move here like a good example is um in a early game uh, arena i've been working on you can shoot at these guys from like kind of like the safety of like a room with a window right yeah and the next cover they have is like it's a let's say over like 20 feet away it's like a good it's a good ways away um so you're relatively safe even though there's actually like a big open space between you and them because there isn't a bunch of cover in there that actually means they won't move up which means once you've kind of like hurt them and got them hiding that kind of gives you um more freedom to like move up into that space and once you've moved up into that space you've claimed it right and uh, you know i think you can kind of break down a lot of combat design in that way where it's like it's about you claiming space so i was like curious how that translates to a um a tactics game where you don't have like the same kind of control over in that way but i i guess cover still probably drives a lot of how you're assuming the player is going to move and at least some of your enemies i know some of them are cover based and some of them aren't right like the little uh, what are they called wretches yeah yeah i assume the boomers aren't but you know i I assume you're probably still thinking about cover in a similar way it's just less about like oh this is going to drive how the player thinks about the map in terms of like oh where enemies going to pop up and more like where are they and the enemies going to want to move to what are the clusters of like movement going to be happening right yeah, and it dictates flow in, in similar ways, but there are a couple of big differences, one of them being Fog of War. I can't even remember which version we ended up shipping with because we had so many different types. Mm-hmm. But we had Fog of War, which obviously changes completely because it means your um, awareness of range becomes 2D. So you can technically have a huge hallway that's super long and that goes out into like the open but that doesn't matter in a game like this because range is dictated by something different other than your line of sight through the eyes of the character because you're looking at stuff top down the range and line of sight become almost a slightly different equation that a player should care about right it was quite strange building levels for it because you were able to break a lot of rules that you would never think to break in first or third person because you'd be thinking about even performance or the art budget (laughs) all sorts of like things because the player could see everything from certain views but that's not really a problem when you're looking at things from a sort of more elevated view we did have the melee hits and all that sort of stuff that did actually go down to a sort of third person view but because it was so close to the action it was never really a problem Mm, yeah that makes sense it would open up the options too much in a first person or third person game i think yeah that makes sense okay so we've been talking a bunch about how you kind of had to adapt to a really different kind of game because your 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 main experience is um first person shooters and third person shooters. Yeah. Have you taken anything from Gears Tactics going forward or has it almost been like unlearning things? On my current indie project, I've been building uh levels in a way that's somewhat similar. Not the same, but I've definitely taken some of those lessons on board, especially around modularity and what works and what doesn't. Because we didn't do everything perfect on Gears, but we did pretty well. Like I learned a lot about wastage and how to build in a modular way that is economical. Um, modularity is meant to be economical, but it sometimes isn't. Mm-hmm. Especially if you approach things too much from a spreadsheet point of view, you know, where you've listed, we need X amount of this, uh, Y amount of that, Z amount of that. It's not always uh, useful to do that before your game's in a state where you've been playing it quite a lot already. The nature of 
fast AAA development does mean that sometimes that does happen. You end up wasting work because you've got a lot of people waiting to do something. So, you you know, you've got people basically treading on your heels kind of thing. That does happen. Yeah. It's hard to avoid. That's something I've been thinking about a lot, actually, in general, is um, level design while a game is being made. I feel like in, in Gears Tactics, it might have been a little easier than some because it's a turn-based game. From what I understand, they actually prototyped it with with like as like a tabletop right like they literally yeah were like working with it as if it was just like this thing you could do with like dice and shit and then like it actually makes sense you could even like design ai that way i think my uh my biggest downfall was uh i've been working on both ai and level design like at the same time mm-hmm. so my understanding of what my levels need has like radically changed over over years of, of working on that project and so what I, I wonder to myself is um, going forward into like new projects, I'm like, what can I learn from Inhuman so I don't do another Inhuman? Because <laughs> I don't, <laughs> don't want to feel like I'm playing catch up with my game. And yeah. I'm like, I think a big part of it is probably testing as much stuff as possible early on. But like think about like possible scenarios you'd want, even just like room shapes. Because uh, even now I've been working with certain types of arenas more than others for quite a bit now. And I'm like, okay, I want to like mix it up with like some of these uh, these things I'm doing now. So like the, the final release has like a good variety. And my AI uh, initially sucked ass at handling at it. And it was, it was really uh, quite flustering. And I'm happy at least I have a, I have a more modular AI system, so it was easy to kind of like start tweaking things. But it, it made me realize like, oh yeah, I still have not fully locked down like my understanding of what the game can and can't handle. And so I'm curious how in like your, your indie project or in AAA, when is that kind of decided? Like, do you kind of early on just kind of like stay okay? These are going to be like kind of our map types. This is what we're like designing the game around. So like, if you if you stray from that, like we're not going to be able to support that as well. It's it's always different on different projects. Mm. I, I think I've mentioned before that the way Ubisoft do this sort of stuff is they have their target gameplay footage that they basically sold the project on. Mm-hmm. So that goes along with a pitch. It's basically like a high end video of what the game could be. It's hitting all the bullet points that the pitch has highlighted. So it gives people who are greenlighting projects the idea of what they're going to be greenlighting. And then from there, you build a first playable prototype, so an FPP. And that is where you probably learn all of the stuff that you need to learn to build the actual game. It's essentially a big vertical slice. Some people called it a horizontal slice. But you get a good idea of the types of gameplay you want in your game. And then you get a good idea of how to build it. And then when you fully go into development, you start to work out ways of making that more efficient. In a similar way to what I was talking about with Gears Tactics, with the vertical slice, there was the demo at E3, but uh, alongside there was uh, a couple of side missions that were also playable from the menu that had basically zero artwork, but they proved the flow from a design point of view. So you could play those like sort of 360 degree style combat encounters rather than those tunnels that were in the pretty version. Mm. Um, So there was like almost like two gameplay styles happening at the same time. But one was obviously built in a way that works well with art because you're basically making a pretty hallway. And the other one is dynamic, always changing, like trying to figure out what the nuts and bolts of the game are. So that Ubisoft approach and that the approach on Gears Tactics are quite different. 
I'm doing something probably in the middle um, for the indie project I'm on at the moment, where we've been building a sort of a prettier version of the game whilst I'm building rough stuff and kind of spreading myself somewhat thin. But I'm building a version to see what's achievable and a version that is what we're going to be shipping. Right. So we've basically got this demo to go back to that sort of shows how the rest of the game should be looking and feeling like. So even though you might be running around in a bunch of boxes and things and you've got this thing to look at and say, right, this is how it's going to look. Almost a good morale uh, booster to keep that stuff going at the same time. Yeah, it lets you feel like the game's actually going to work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in my free time projects, I'm, I'm the same. Like, I have to break a lot of the rules that you hear like game design theory always talking about like never polish early um stay in gray box or block out for as long as possible and that's okay if you're in a in a work environment with a lot of developers who are going to be picking up the slack you know it's not exactly slack it's it's areas that you're not working i get you i get you it's yeah but when you're working on your own for instance with my world war project i'm doing everything so I'll build a part of a level and I won't know how to art it up. Yep. You know, I won't know how to build any environment art for it. So I have to learn how to do that. I basically need to do the work to know if it's possible. I can't just build like a six hour long level and not ever be able to put any art to it. Yeah, definitely. So... I have to kind of polish as I go. Otherwise, I don't know if I can even do it. It would be different if I was making a sequel, you know. Yeah, I'm actually in a similar position where, uh, you know, obviously I have a little bit more art to work with because it's a mod, but I've got like my own kind of style that I've been building out of it. Yeah. And how I generally work is I'll, you know, obviously block the whole thing out and try to get, I want to make sure I have something functioning before I start doing any kind of detail just to make sure it like feels good. And then I try to think, okay, like what what shapes can I play with to kind of like lean into whatever space I'm trying to do more. And usually around that point is when I'll probably in some smaller part of the map play around with um, details, which could even include like textures on the wall and stuff like that. Just to kind of give me an idea of like, what am I really like shooting for? And like, how doable is it? Yeah. Because usually that, that helps inform a lot. Like just um, there's like this hallway that like is like my favorite thing to still show up from the game where it's it's, it's not even that complicated it's mostly just like a bunch of pipes on the screen and you know like a moody little hallway but it helped me really like inform like the rest of how i wanted those spaces to look i like i understood what i was going for after i did that so i i I totally get what you're talking about when you uh come from there i think like my biggest kind of hang up right now i feel like i'm getting a lot better about like understanding okay here are like the variables i'm working with you know like this is what my enemies want like uh if they're not taking cover obviously means i need to like carve out some part of the map to kind of help them like get in somewhere so they can move up and all that but i feel like i struggle a lot with fitting in like story like really finding a way to like create like a narrative out of a level is that something you actually think about a whole lot or is it yeah kind of like the old school way where it's it's like who was it said you know it's like stories and games it's like story in a porno it's like that's how i feel like <laughs> it's john Carmack. yeah some games handle like i feel i feel like my, my game kind of falls into that fear territory where fear i love it but it is absolutely just like a series of fights like you just kind of go into a room you kill some dudes you walk out of the room you're in another room you kill some dudes uh when there's a plot moment it's never really connected to like what you're doing it's never like oh you got to do this thing and then this thing will happen i personally don't like any of the horror stuff in it 
Yeah, no, it's, it's a little cheesy. It breaks the flow for me because I'm playing it for the fun combat. And I think one thing that Fear does well narratively is making those spaces feel, you know, coherent. Um, there's some uh, odd offices that have like no windows and that are <laughs> down a corridor. It's like, yeah, sure. it'd be the most depressing place to ever work. <laughs> that's armor can, baby. <laughs> Uh, that's that's the kind of stuff I think they usually get right in that game, but the overall narrative stuff I wasn't really too interested in. When it comes to my own work, I'm saying it again, it's project dependent. In my free time stuff, my World War Walking Sim game that I mentioned briefly before, that I think about narrative constantly because that's all the game has. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the Super 1-1 challenge, I'm not really thinking about narrative at all. What does Princess Peach really think? <laughs> I, I mean... There is a sort of narrative I'm following there in that it's still level 1-1. So if you were to take a bunch of screenshots of Super 1-1 Challenge and put them next to 1-1, like overlay them, there are things that are almost identical from 2D to 3D. Mm -hmm. That was the intent of the challenge. So I kept a lot of that stuff in there. So I am trying to keep that feel throughout so that there is a sort of through line, but it's more of a, a level narrative through line. Yeah, that's actually what I was going to get. It's like, I'm not even necessarily talking about like story as in like, oh, character or whatever, but like something where there's like a a coherent kind of running thing in the in the level where it's like you have a goal, there's a thing happening, you do something, it affects what's happening in the level. I think, you know, I think uh, a lot of shooters have really perfected that part of it where it's like you constantly have a guy yelling at you like we got to go do this thing and almost almost always if it's an exciting game. You do the thing and then something wrong happens, right? You know, oh, yeah. we got to get like this boat going. Oh, no, there's like, you know, like an explosion happened. Oh, like the bad guys are showing up. Oh, now there's a crazy boat chase. You know, it feels like you had a you had a goal. You're trying to get somewhere. Oh, you got a boat. Oh, now you're on the boat. You know, blah, blah, blah. What, you know, whatever. Where it's like, I feel like that's something I'm trying to figure out more. And I'm, I'm curious, like, when you feel like you need to do that in a level, do you feel like you tackle it head on at the start or do, you, do does it kind of retrofit itself in like do you kind of like i was thinking like for gears tactics where you had like you had plenty of moments like that like there's like a moment where you're like fighting like a big boss who's like chasing you for a while if i remember correctly if i, I might be thinking incorrectly if i remember there's like a big old like uh what they call it brumak or whatever i can't remember if he chases you but i remember you're like on a bridge you had some objective that leads to him like showing up yeah yeah basically it's not chasing you directly right that that is something that happens in a cutscene where it gets introduced but we right right we hinted it on the way up to it it's quite a difficult thing to do in a turn-based game i remember we had a lot of discussions over like you know dropping in little uh little narrative pieces of interest here and there mm-hmm. it was kind of hard to really get that across to players in a lot of cases it is there that there are things that we mention but sometimes it clashes with the language i'll bring up one example um where there's a there's a character in the game, the, the main bad guy called Ukon. He has some kind of um, lung deficiency. Uh, <laughs> he's got he's got COVID. What is it? Uh, uh, he's got rust lung. Uh, it's called in in the game. Um, and there's uh, he's he has some gas stuff to kind of cure it. And throughout the game, there are these canisters, and we had no real way of placing them in the map and having a, an objective on them because we didn't have that as an objective type. So we took one of our existing objectives and added it 
into it. We, we basically put in an extra animation to kind of highlight the differences in the mm. objective that you're picking up. So usually you, you open up a, a case and you get something cool from it. But this was like a specific canister. So we had like a different camera angle to show it off. And then it got called out in the cutscene at the end of the mission. But because it's turn-based, there could have been a lot of time between that. There are some limits on how many turns you can have, I think, before you failed or whatever. Yeah. But it didn't work particularly well it was one of those things that on paper it seemed like a a no-brainer if you were making a first person shooter again you'd be able to make the stuff stand out well but it didn't really work well with the language of that game and i think knowing the narrative language of your game is is as important as hitting any of the beats that you've perhaps written or you know narrative designers have come up with you need to make sure that all of your beats work well with the design language almost and that was something I think we slipped up with here and there. But with the Brumac, I think we, we may have dropped some of it because we knew it wasn't working so great in other places. But we definitely had a raw sound and we put it in the cutscene because we worked out that any time that players really cared about any narrative moments was in moments where they weren't playing. So we, we kept them out for that reason. Yeah, that makes sense. It was in that type of game. It's definitely different in every game, but knowing what, I guess, what language you have to work with is probably the most important thing when you're building that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's something I'm definitely considering because I only have like a limited time to kind of get like more stuff done for this this project, really. I'm, I'm trying to get like the first half of it shipped pretty much. Yeah. Because I'm trying to think like, are there ways I could maybe fit in a little bit more where I could highlight like the player's interest and get them maybe staying in a space longer? Because there's only... um. Right now, in the current, like, kind of vertical slice demo I have, there's, like, one part where it's, like, you actually get, like, a goal, and then you have to kind of, like, circle around the map and, you know, explore parts of it to kind of return back to that goal. And I'm like, I feel like I should probably try to hit that beat a couple more times, or try to hit something more than once, where it's like, here's what you're trying to do besides move forward. Because, you know, that's... That feels good, but like it, I feel like it starts to blur together if you don't have anything in between. And I think that's something yeah. Half-Life 2 really excels at. So it's kind of funny that I don't really excel at it because I've been focused on everything else. Again, that's the weakness of doing game design and level design at the same time. I Yeah, yeah. I really don't want to do it again. There are people telling me, oh, when you're on Unreal Engine, you'll love being able to do like your own game all the way. And I'm like, no, I'd really love to not have to touch certain things at all for a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And you know what? I think I actually want to do a level separate. Like, I think I want to go do a Rain World map or something. I want to go do just a level. You know what I mean? Like, just think about something as just a level. Yeah. No gameplay elements that, like, are new or whatever. And just see what I can do from there. Maybe that'll help me improve it as a level designer. Not that I ever plan on doing it professionally. I I think the language that you build um, when it comes to, like, how you're going to handle narrative beats is probably... Mm-hmm. where you need to go next you need to work out what you say you've got one difference does that mean you give the player an objective yes yeah, the thing is I, I think i'm not very good at giving the player like objectives in in like the level it's like you know like i said very much like fear where it feels like your objectives are never really lined up with like what you're doing you know it's like they tell you oh you got to go get this guy mm-hmm. but within your exploration of the level it is usually just move forward there's like maybe two or three moments i can think of where it's like there's an obstacle on your path and you have to like go out of your way to like deal with the obstacle like oh there's some mines and like when you shoot them it causes like this electrical box to go crazy and there's like you know cartoonish levels of electricity shooting all over the walls so you gotta like take a side path to like disable it 
You know, it's like just little things like that that give you like a moment where it's like, okay, I know I want to go this way, but I can't yet. And this is how uh, I'm going to do it or this is why I need to do it. And that gives I think that gives you more moments to also insert like small story moments, you know, where it's like that, you know, that's what where characters usually do their talking in movies anyway or games, you know, where it's like, oh, things aren't going the way we want. That's pretty much how Half-Life 2 does it, right? They've basically got a couple of different types of gameplay. They've got their minute-to-minute combat. They have minute-to-minute driving, uh, well, vehicle plus combat. Yeah. Then the other two things are like full stop for um, a puzzle. They're very rarely active at the same time as any of the other gameplay types. They're usually a sort of yeah at a, at a point, a bridge point between two of those gameplay moments. So yeah, you've got your puzzles, and then you've also got your narrative moments, which is where everything's kind of set up for the next few hours. That's probably the thing that you're missing right now. I don't know, I don't think you are probably wanting to push the puzzle thing much. Yeah, not much. But it's like, I probably I, I probably need to find more ways to just add like an obstacle or something, where it's like, you can't go here yet. You have to go do something else. Anything that, like... Anything that makes the space feel more like a like a three D thing, where it's like you you can see the sides of it, you can see under it. Yeah, I think that's like uh, my favorite levels uh, for Half Life Two are usually the ones where it's like you see something and then you can see all kinds of surprising angles of it. There's like a really great fan map called a uh, Year Long Alarm by, if I remember correctly, uh, Chuck Wilson, who has gone on to work at uh, Respawn. Really a talented guy and. You know, it's not like the most challenging thing and it doesn't even have a whole lot of like the usual Half-Life 2 combat to like the last third of it. Right. But it's really, really great at presenting situations where you want to go somewhere and it's obvious you want to go there. Like, oh, here's an elevator and it's the only obvious exit, but the elevator's off. And so you go behind the elevator, like maybe you go like through like a little vent and then like you, you take, do some exploring and then you find yourself looking at the elevator through a window and there's like a button you can press and you press the button and you see the elevator turn on you see like the platform for it like come up and then you have to um find your way to it from there because you can't go back the way you came uh it's constantly doing that like almost like in a loop where it's like i'm gonna go here but not i can't yet even just as simple as like oh there's like a door but it's like behind a fence so the exit you actually take is to your left and then you drop down hoping you'll eventually get back to that spot if anyone like is looking to learn about like exploration design i would that's my go-to example year-long alarm which you can i believe find on steam now Hmm. yeah that sounds like an extension of lock and key behavior right yeah yeah pretty much even though you're never exactly using a key in the lock it's like you are given like a locked like you know, a locked door that needs opening in some way. Yeah, yeah. you're just changing a state in the environment to be able to progress. Yeah. So uh, do you have any of those progression blockers in, in at the moment? Um, In like one major section there is. And I'm like, I feel like I need to get at least two more in there to like feel more complete. So I'm probably going to try to sneak one in really early on, you know, where it's like you're just getting used to the game you're just starting give the player like a space where they can kind of like move around a bit and have i I was thinking it'd be kind of fun to have like enemies move in after you've like you know unlocked it or maybe have enemies at the start and then at the end so it's like you can reuse the space in in, in that way yeah so i want to i want to do that and then fit more later in the game and you know hopefully it'll uh feel like a more complete game for it because it definitely is a little bit too much of that like moment to moment gameplay 
I think that's about it for a level design process. Yeah, yeah. So probably a final note before we move off from the topic of level design process. I have also been really looking into new time management techniques because I've always struggled because I am a completely independent game developer. I have no one pushing me to do anything. And I've never been great with, uh, I guess, scheduling myself. Uh, I've been trying this thing called the, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, the Pomodoro or Pomodoro technique. Yeah, I think it's Pomodoro. It's, it means tomato, right? Yeah, something like that. It's like a little tomato clock. It's what it's like based off of. Uh, the idea is basically you wind up a clock for about 25 minutes. You focus on a task. You, you So you like, you know, no, no phone, no uh, like messenger bullshit, none of that. You just you focus on whatever task you're doing for 25 minutes. And then you take a, a five-minute break when those 25 minutes are out. I mean, it doesn't have to be ex- exactly five minutes, but that's usually what I time it around for. Uh, you do that, and after you've done it three times, after you know the fourth time, you take a, a, a significantly longer break, like 30 to 40 minutes. And that has really helped me stay, not just like on task, but like it helps keep my mind focused on what I'm doing because I, I don't hit my breaking point where i'm getting frustrated or i've been staring at something for too long i always feel like energized to work on the next part of it where i'll step i'll I'll get up and i'm not it's also giving me exercise which is nice because if you're working on games uh you're sitting all day you need to push against that the other thing that's good to do is to um look into the distance save your eyes (laughs) oh yeah for sure yeah yeah, I've got eye strain right now from not doing that. My poor eyeballs. But yeah, getting up and actually just thinking through, okay, so I was just doing this for this level. Like, what needs to come next? Like, what's what's the issue I'm facing? And I, I've consistently felt far more productive in much shorter periods of time. So anyone struggling to, like, kind of stay on task and or, like, getting overwhelmed with uh, managing a lot of stuff, I would say just give it a try just like give like just give yourself a 25 minute timer tell yourself what am i going to do and just do that and it, it might uh might really help you it's been really helping me it's pretty good for getting through um uh, monotonous tasks too oh yeah for sure yeah i remember discovering it i think it was back on crackdown 2 and i had a lot of monotonous tasks on that game so it was it was a good way of getting through those <laughs> uh moving off of level design uh, do you want to get into... I didn't get a chance to play them, but I, I looked a little bit more into some of these games, so you might have a lot more to say than I would. Oh, the Next Fest demos. Yeah, the Next Fest demos, because we talked a little bit about that. You seem pretty excited to talk about some of this, so why, why don't you go off? Yeah, so I downloaded quite a few of them and didn't get any time to play many of them, but I played through Turbo Overkill completely. Like I explored the demo completely. Yes. So I lapped that up. That was good. I And I was a bit skeptical at first. I was a bit turned off by the footage they'd released, as I discussed in, was it the last uh, podcast? Yeah, yeah. And I think we talked a little bit. So you didn't feel like it was too much of a power trip? Because I feel like that's that was the impression I was getting. It was like, it's, like, it's a little bit too easy to just mop everything up. So the balance is a little bit wonky. If I was to give a very quick summary, it's fine, but it's a bit boring. <laughs> because the player is... Completely OP. Yeah. You do mop up the enemies, no problem. But if you don't perform, you will get destroyed quickly. If you're operating in that sort of realm where you're doing the slides along the ground, you're like jumping around, being quite agile, using every tool at your disposal, the game works, but it feels like a cakewalk. 
doesn't really feel like you're being challenged ever. And as soon as you, you know, release the gas a little bit, <laughs> um, you get destroyed. So interesting. It felt a little bit boring. There's like this expectation, like a requirement to outperform the enemies. There's not really much in the way of playing with them. And yeah, it, it kind of got boring because of that. Some of the attacks, like the sliding chainsaw leg attack, I, th- I think you just double tech crouch or you did it after running or something. Um, that just destroys any like low tier enemy instantly. Like, you know, Shower of Gore, very satisfying, but you see it a lot and it does get fatiguing because you see it so much. And there are some enemies that don't work with that. So you hit them and you bounce off. There's not really anything that tells you that that's going to happen, really. Oh, I never liked that. Which is a bit weird. But um, once you learn, you learn, right? So it's not it's not too bad at that point. So sure. they mix things up a little bit, but then it, it just made me switch to larger weapons and shoot things from slightly further away. Um, I don't think there's a style system in there. There might have been, I can't remember. But, you know, there wasn't really a reason not to cheese the enemies. And it, if you didn't, it felt a bit like you were doing a disservice to yourself. I don't know. It, it's weird because obviously that's that's kind of what people like in Dark Souls so I, I can't really sort of slam that too much but it did feel that I was too overpowered and the game was expecting me to be like that yeah it's a feeling I have with a lot of games where you're really powerful where I feel like it's actually a better feeling when you're powerful like in a burst yeah Unless, like, getting there is, like, ridiculous. Like, I always say, unless you're Devil May Cry. Because Devil May Cry is the only game I'm aware of where they can balance it that well. Where it's like, you can really style on that game, but, like, it takes a lot to, like, get to that point. You're not, like, just picking the game up and just massacring the screen. Yeah. But um, something like, say, Doom Eternal, I think, is a decent example where um, the game gives you a lot of tools to really, like, blow things up. Mm-hmm. but it also gives you pretty dangerous enemies and it's co- and, and the more it raises the stakes the more it, it asks you how are you going to deal with priority threats you know are you going to use your ice bomb here you're going to like light some guys on fire so you can get your armor back etc it's like yeah yeah you know it, it gets nuts and a lot of these more dangerous environments also get a little bit more cramped that's like something kind of missing in more of these power trippy shooters yeah i think a lot about that game um crap what was it called a vanquish uh where it's like kind of a standard third person shooter but also has like amazing movement where you can like explode forward in the cover and stuff yeah and i always felt like get rid of the regen health and tie in like your ways to get health the way doom did it where you can like you know rip like a thing out of a robot or something and then suddenly that movement feels like a way to get back into the game like okay like maybe i'll shoot a guy stagger him and you know explode into him and you know rip his little robot parts out or whatever and it's like that's kind of something i want from a game like turbo overkill it doesn't quite give where it's like i need that moment where i care that i'm gonna like do a thing like oh now i can chainsaw this guy oh now I can... it just feels like oh i'm gonna do it because i can yeah there were a few moments like you get wall running at some point and that that kind of turned me off I, i'm very uh, i've got this strange hatred for wall running it's not a mechanic i like mm. it makes me dislike a game instantly for some reason how do you feel about it in sprawl that's something we, we're gonna have to talk about in the near future well yeah that will be interesting <laughs> yeah for anyone not knowing sprawl is another um 
I guess you can call it Boomer Shooter. It's like coming up that I've had a chance to play with a little bit. I think we'll be talking about that next episode. But um, yeah, I'm just curious. Yeah, wall running. It's just something I just don't enjoy doing. And I find that it doesn't really lead to interesting gameplay. It feels like an extension of a quick time event to me. And I've, I've never seen it done in an interesting way. The most interesting I've seen it was its first implementation, you know, in a big game, which was in Mirror's Edge. And I felt that it's never gone any further than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was quite a long time ago now. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's not really something I particularly enjoy. Right. Were there any other uh, big demos you, you played besides Turbo Overkill you want to talk about? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, there were some other positives of, of Turbo Overkill. It was... Okay, sorry. It was really nice looking. Like, it was... Oh, yeah, for sure. It was surprisingly coherent as well. It, it had consistent, you know, textile density and stuff. Like, the, the visuals were really nice. There were some VFX that just looked amazing. Like, there are some great things about the game, and a lot of the um, audio design's nice too. It's just, yeah, that power balance was off for me. So, I think when it's out, I'll probably pick it up because there were satisfying elements to it, and I'm sure things will change over time. But, right. The second game I tried was Hollowsk 1999 which has the URL sovietHill.com. So that kind of gives you an idea of what it's about. I, unlike Turbo Overkill, which I exhausted the demo, I I played through it fully once and played it a bit more in places, either where I had a save or I played the first level again, I can't remember. But I I exhausted the demo. Hollows, I only played a bit of it because there was a little bit more jank than I was expecting in a demo. It felt more like what I would play if I was sent uh, an alpha from a developer or something and that sort of put me off a little bit and yeah I didn't really I played it for a while and didn't really feel like anything was happening so I I stopped and then I went and watched the trailer and the trailer actually highlights this in the menu there's like a fake version of Windows that has like an instant messenger and stuff I I, I think at least that's what the uh, the trailer had in there where they explain that there's nothing going on and then there actually is and so I must have missed the point of it and some Something that's different these days to when I used to play demos as a kid is that I don't have as much time. Yeah, of course. And also I can buy full games now. Yeah. As a kid, I couldn't. Yeah. Like when I was a kid, some demos are all I played. Like I remember um, PlayStation demo discs. I just play the hell out of them. Like I remember. Oh yeah, those were the shit. Some of my fondest memories are like sort of some of the early Saturn uh, demo discs. And I just played the hell out of the demos and never bought the games in most cases because the demos gave me what I wanted. And I like I did with this Turbo Overkill demo, I exhausted them. But I don't really need to do that these days. So demos have got to be really sticky for me to see them through. But to counter uh, my own point, when I watched that. That trailer i realized that that is the developer of no one lives under the lighthouse a game that i bought some time ago because people recommended it to me so i will play that then i'll go back and play hollow 1999's demo and see if i maybe missed something because no one lives under the lighthouse looked good enough for me to buy just from you know a couple of screenshots and some recommendations from friends the demo was not a good way of selling the game to me shall i say in a very similar way um my friendly neighborhood how much of that did i play not much. Um, I was actually wrong about what it was as well. Oh. My Friendly Neighborhood is not what I originally thought it was. It's not... Um, uh, is it Chuck E. Cheese that we say it was? Is it... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You thought it it's was it's not one of those. It's actually more like um, Sesame Street or something. Hmm, I'm going to look this up. My Friendly Neighborhood? And it is really novel. There's some cool stuff in there. It's, it's well animated, it, lo- it looks really nice, the style's cool, but um, after the first 
enemy encounter, I came up against a puzzle, which I didn't have the pieces for. Then I came up against another puzzle, which I didn't have the pieces for. And then I just realized that there was probably more puzzling than I really wanted to do in a demo. Yeah. Why is that always so tied in with horror? I'm like, is is the true fear like a, a fucking, like, what do they call those like little sliding block puzzles where you have to like, you know, basically do like a Rubik's Cube? I'm like, what? Yeah. Is that... Is that the true face of, of my nightmares? I can do puzzles and things in the context of a larger game as a sort of a, a, a pace. Sure. Like a form of pacing the game. In a demo, if that's in there, I sort of get a little bit afraid that it's not going to go anywhere, right? Like unless the de- the demo is about maybe a new type of puzzle that they're not going to do again in the game or something. Otherwise, I'm just kind of spoiling the game a little bit. Yeah. I, th- I like it more when the puzzle feels like it's an extension of, like, the game world itself. Like, I think that's what Half-Life 2 excels at, you know? It's like, yeah. here's how the physics work. Here's how, like, enemies in the world work. So, you know, you understand things. Like, oh, there's, like, some turrets in a hall. Like, I, I mean, it's not like a puzzle puzzle, but turrets at the end of the hallway are still... They're an obstacle where it's like, okay, you can knock those over however you want, but they need to be knocked over or they're going to, like, shoot you up. Where it's like, press these piano keys in this sequence. I'm like... Oh, I don't need it. Yeah, this this felt like um I was stepping into like a a shooter like Bioshock or something, and then I was hmm. confronted with a puzzle from Silent Hill. Yeah, that's weird. It wasn't what I was looking for. Um, I think the weapons are interesting. The style's very cool. Yeah, I I, I like it, but I probably won't play through the demo of it because I I think it's the sort of thing I'd want to play in a game. Right. Maybe demos. I'm looking for something, just something simple to know what the three C's are like, to know what a combat encounter's like, because most of the games I play are going to be combat. That must be what I'm looking for. Like, maybe if I just played a level of Quake or Rot or Dusk or something, like, that would work as a demo for me. Like, whereas if you give me, like, a block sliding puzzle or something, I'm probably not going to play it, because there's only one input and one output, right? Like, there's only one outcome for, for what I'm doing, whereas if I'm playing with combat mechanics, I'm, I could technically play that two or three times and experience something slightly different. It was interesting to play them, but Turbo Overkill was the only real standout for me as, as an actual demo that sold me on what the game will be, whereas the other two, I felt like maybe they'd be better just game purchases rather than mm. playing them up front. It's strange to look purely from a marketing point of view, but that's that's kind of how I looked at it. Um, yeah. Well, hey, it was still, you know, a decent way to kind of get a look at some indie games. I really, I really appreciated that whole event. I, ho- I hope we get more stuff like it. Um, I'm worried we're not because I feel like it attracted the worst kinds of people expecting some really dumb shit that wasn't what the show was for. I remember hearing something about like they thought it was going to be some Team Fortress. Ah, uh, yes. But uh, speaking of indie games, I don't know if you'd call it news, but there was a pretty decent video on some... Um, Pretty sad stories about uh, not so good uh, work environments, largely coming down to like one big figurehead done by uh, Chris Bratt, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He makes a YouTube show called People Make Games, right? Yeah, I had to put a question mark there because it's just an odd last name. And I was like, am I? No, no, that's that's him. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really wanted to get into this. Uh, I don't really want to hit too many hot button topics on this podcast. Um just because I don't think we're like no super qualified to talk about them, like I don't know why anyone would want to listen to Comfort Jones talk about unionization or something, <laughs> uh, you know. But auteur theory is something I feel like I have direct experience with as someone who I am the sole, I'm like the the lead guy for my project, and there are people who had a lot of work on it, but 
I, I have the executive control over it, and I have uh, I have been a lead game designer on a couple other projects, so I, I know what that feels like. And you're you're working in a similar capacity in some ways. Yes, yeah, on the indie project. Yeah, and I just I want to uh, put my put my foot down on that and just say I think auteur theory is largely bullshit. And if you want to be on auteur. Like if you if your if your thought process is like what film directors are to games, I want to be to to I'm sorry, what film directors are to movies, I want to be to games. Uh, you need to learn to collaborate rather than to um, manage. Yeah. So I, I imagine like you probably have a little bit more to comment directly on like what's being said here, and then I'll probably like get back in on that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's strange because. You know, you're hearing things from a third party, from people who have tried to be as anonymous as they can be, because everyone's paranoid about destroying their career, right? Yeah, we should probably set up just really quick, like, what exactly was being alleged. Uh, the the biggest recurring problem I've heard from multiple of these uh, stories, not just from this video, but like in general, was it's like, it's usually an indie studio. Usually it tries to pick up a bunch of people from like like that scene and they, they push this idea like, oh, we're going to be making something different. You know, like we're, you know, this is like a creative place. And there's always a big guy at the top who has some kind of clout. They seem to uh, drag morale down by overmanaging people and often beating them down with their um, negative feedback where it's like sometimes on a whim, they'll be like, oh, we should try doing something. So that'll that'll be like weeks of work and then that goes down the drain or maybe there's a team meeting called by someone who's new to the project who was called in to like help with some major aspect of it. And this, this lead designer who is not involved in that aspect of the game questions, why do we even need the meeting? I don't even know why we're doing this. Lots of, lots of nonsense like that. I've always been really conscious of applying any negative feedback towards any situation. Because sometimes it's like things call for it, especially if somebody's not been um, performing in, in a certain way, which doesn't happen very often because, you know, you're usually working with professionals. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I'm very, very conscious about how I approach most situations. And obviously you can get into sort of friendly territory with people you're working with. Like ideally you do. So sometimes it can be a bit strange to kind of switch, like switch that on discipline mode or whatever. But I approach all of that stuff like with a very conscious mind um, because it, it can be hard to like hear like criticism. It's weird reading when some of this stuff sounds kind of just outright nasty and just I don't know. It just sounds a bit vindictive and strange. It's it's kind of one of those things where when you've only got a certain awareness of you know a personality through you know um, curated media, it can be quite surprising to see that because I've known people who have worked with uh, some of the people in, in some of those different teams in different studios and so on, but they would have gone there because of those people probably thinking that they were one thing and actually turning out to be another. I mean, I've I've never personally put much stock in that sort of stuff. Because I know that games are made by teams, not by individuals. So it's it's quite it's quite strange for me to read and see some of that stuff. I'm just fortunate to not have that situation happen to me. I suppose I've worked at a one of the biggest, uh, like I guess, auteur companies. Like I worked on Star Citizen, right? Mm. That's basically everyone in that company is making Chris Roberts' dream come to life. Right. But he's not a dick. I guess that's <laughs> <laughs> that, that's not. Uh, that's that's probably the biggest difference, I suppose, in these these cases. Like he's generally pretty open to like anything. He's obviously got a vision. He wants to stick to it. He you know hires people for their talents, right? And I I never had any problems uh, at all in that situation. So it's the only 
similar experience I can think of and I didn't really have any issues. Like I, I definitely have my stamp on my own work. I got feedback uh, sometimes directly from Chris when it was needed. And yeah, it was it was all fine. I, I never had any negative experiences that some people have had with directors on different projects. And it's, it sucks to read that stuff because obviously it goes on. At the same time this YouTube video was released, uh, an article relating to Moon Studios was released at the same time. Mm. And I had a friend, a uh, close friend who worked on that and basically confirmed everything in there and said, well, it was, it was even worse than that. Oof. They've clearly tried to soften some of that to kind of maintain anonymity. I don't know, smooth some of the existing relationships, maybe. It's, it sounds like not great. Um, I hope these articles come into light will help people change uh, the way that they structure their companies, maybe give people some time to actually think and reflect on things. Like I don't know. I, I, I really don't know the answer to this stuff. It just sucks that it happens. And Is there any advice you could give people like for avoiding that? It's really hard. Like there's, there's some people I know who have gone to companies where they know that there are known issues at those companies. They go in there knowing it mm-hmm. because they want something out of the company, something specific. Right. So I know people who have gone to studios that they know are toxic. <laughs> they know that they're going to do loads of crunch and overtime and stuff, but the money is worth it or the project is worth it. The, the acclaim is worth it. Right. I'm not one of those people. I have friends who are. Um, some people who just kind of, they see it as a means to an end. They're probably in a privileged enough position to not be the butt of, like, you know, some of the... Uh, the worst aspects of toxic culture. Yeah, I mean, like, call some of it what it is. Sometimes it's racist, sexist. Yeah. There's people I know who aren't going to be subject to that and they're willing to take the hit. But it, do- it doesn't help if you do that. Um, but it's it's their choice to do those things. I can just say that I wouldn't do it myself. My advice is just do your research about a company beforehand. And that research doesn't mean looking at their PR. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look at what people say. You know, like, what, what is it called? Was it Glassdoor or whatever? There's like a couple. Yeah, places. yeah. Because a lot of these people... Um, the people who have been most abusive are the people who have been advertising themselves. Um, yep. They've tweaked their online or like their, their media persona around a very specific type of purpose. And it's usually to be as inclusive as possible. And really, they're not. Or they are and they don't realize how yeah. terrible they can be around people. Yeah, I do your research. That's all I can suggest. And I know that's nearly impossible for people who are coming in fresh. Yeah. Ask a lot of questions in interviews. Like a lot of questions because a lot of people don't. Sometimes you can be too polite in early interviews in your career. Oh, yeah, because you're scared. You're like, oh, I want to get hired. Or it's yeah. like, you know, they're also hiring someone. So, like, presumably they, they think you might be valuable enough to pay. So, you know, yeah. be sure, like, you, you know, this is worth your time too. There is a conundrum there. They're like, if you're starting out, if you do find out there's negatives there, are you willing to pay that price? Or? Yeah, that's the problem. There's one studio in particular, I won't name it, but um, I've heard um, from somebody who worked there, they referred to their junior staff as, I think it was either wood or firewood. Ah. Uh, because, you know, there's there's always more of them for the fire, you know. Like, you could complain, doesn't matter, there'll be more. Because ah. they they're big enough that it doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah you just see them as uh, fuel, basically. Yeah, I guess like the main thing I want to add to this is someone who's like, you know, like when people look at my project, they'll call it my project, you know, but I fully own the fact that the only reason it's fun is because of things I would have never done for it. So like I have a a great uh, sound uh, designer and um, 
kind of like general programmer. She does like a lot of uh, just random crap for the game. And it's boosted like the, the, the feel of the game so much. So like, you know, the average time you're playing the game, really, you're enjoying her work. You're not enjoying mine. Like if, if, if shooting that gun feels good, it's because an animator took their time to work on my project and a sound designer took their time to work on my project. And, you know, you can have your idea of like what you want, but if you genuinely feel like something isn't being done right, you need to get the correct language to get that from them and approach those situations with the understanding that they probably know a lot more about it than you do. And that it's possible that what you want isn't actually what's like right it's like you might have a goal that is worthy but like what you think accomplishes is that goal is not necessarily the same yeah like you know depending on like the kind like maybe you're making um more of a let's say like an over-the-top like kind of action shooter and so you might be like really pushing your sound designer to like make the guns like really loud and they might actually push against that and say, well, actually, like, if you're trying to make this game where you want, like, the player to be able to respond to sound cues, you know, like, enemies charging up an attack or maybe, like, a dude makes a noise and he runs at you or whatever, they need that that sound needs to, like, come through the environment really clearly so we can't have our guns, like, you know, overwhelming that. You need to be able to, like, hear that and understand they're not telling you, like, oh, your vision is trash. What they're trying to tell you is, is, like, you've given me like this like world to work with and i'm trying to help you like make it what it should be and if you, if you can you know if you can collaborate with people that's how your vision comes to light it's like people will still and it's not even about stealing credit it's just that's how people will still treat it if if you really were that involved you know like look like a tarantino film or something people call him tarantino films and he he'll he's talked about this where he he says like collaboration is how you make that happen if you want a, like a kojima game you need Kojima Studios, and I think, I think that's why he's managed to stay relevant compared to a lot of these other types. Because his team seems to genuinely really like working for him. They seem to they seem to be genuinely lo- loyal. So there seems to be a lot of camaraderie there. And yeah, I know like for Metal Gear Solid Two, and I imagine for other games, he he borderline forced people to give their input. Where he's like, we have a suggestion box. Put an idea in the suggestion box. You know, tell tell us what you want out of this game. And I think. I think that's really cool. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So yeah, I don't know. Um, d- don't be an asshole. That's uh, <laughs> the Comfort Jones uh, uh, tip of the day. And manage your time because overworking yourself will make yourself less productive. Don't let people overwork you. And that includes yourself. You can be your own worst enemy. And I'm sure a lot of these weirdo leads who are ruining everybody's day are probably ruining their own day too. So, uh, you know, uh, get your shit together. <laughs> Uh, do we have anything else we really want to comment on, or I think that's a I think that's a wrap for the day, huh? Yeah, I think that thing that covers everything we were going to talk about. Yeah. Um. So we were talking a bit about um that Turbo Overkill game, and I wanted to get into uh we've we've been playing, or at least I've been playing a little bit of this uh little shooter called Sprawl. It's not out yet, but the uh, one of the fine developers for it has given me an early access build. And we should be doing an interview with uh, her and her co-dev, uh, hopefully next episode. So uh, check out Sprawl if you're curious in uh, seeing how that game plays. Uh, I'm not going to comment on it right now, but I think it's pretty cool. And I'm pretty excited to do that episode. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to work out how we're going to go about doing it. But yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, this has been Funk Podcast. I'm Comfort Jones. And yeah, I'm Sean Noonan. And that's a wrap.